But I think a confidentiality agreement is appropriate for any position that has access to customer information, customer lists. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with a, with a, you know, a confidentiality agreement that prohibits workers who have that knowledge from disclosing that information uh, after they leave. This is the PMP Industry Insider Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome out to another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast, where we look at what is changing in the industry and take it to the front lines to those that are driving those changes. As always, I'm Donnie Shelton, owner of Triangle Home Services, which has Triangle Pest as well as Triangle Lawn. And with me is Dan Gordon, Cy, and a fantastic guest. So, Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Maybe not very yes. long. Maybe not as yeah, long no, as you I usually do. And then spend a lot more more time on our guests. So and our absolutely. topic. Yeah, absolutely. So uh hello everyone. Dan Gordon, PCO bookkeepers, PCO MA specialist, turf books. Um, and uh, we cater to the pest and lawn industry for accounting services and exit planning services. And as our other episodes, this is sponsored by Cole March by Workwave to learn more uh at uh, about Coal March, go to colmarch.com. And as far as a guest, today we're talking about hot HR topics, including non-competes, independent contractors, and exempt employees. And we are welcoming back for an unprecedented third visit, because when things change or when we want the answers, we uh, tend to uh, go to this guest as a go-to, and it, it is Gene Seawright of Seawright & Associates. Uh, I'm just going to read a sentence here, a human resource consulting firm that specializes in providing advice and solutions to clients nationwide to reduce their legal liabilities, enhance profits and productivity, improve morale, and ensure compliance with state and federal employment regulations. Uh, Gene's a frequent speaker at uh, National Trade Associations, a columnist and author of numerous articles and publications in the field of HR, and she serves as an expert witness in lawsuits involving HR matters. Welcome, Gene. Great to have you. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. So let, uh, let me just add that also we are a client of jeans and she has been fantastic for our and business. we are thrilled so, about that yeah. and honored that <laughs> so, is awesome so uh probably a month ago maybe two months ago you could correct me i saw something come down about uh uh certain proposed regulations to uh get rid of non-competes and i figured it was time to call gene and say well what does this mean to, to, to us? What does this mean to us as an industry? Um, when we do M&A transactions, that's one of the first things that a buyer will ask. Do you have non-competes with all of your employees and whatnot? And I just wanted to, to get uh, an expert's opinion on, number one, what, what does a non-compete mean? How does it differ from a non-solicit, a non-disparage? Um, and how... Uh, could this, um, uh, if, if this law were to go into effect, how would this affect us? Uh, can I give you a little background Absolutely. on how we got here, just very briefly, um, because it does um, play a role in, in, in perhaps how, how, how this will end up. Um, in, in July of 2021, uh, the president issued an executive order, um, and it was uh, entitled Promoting Competition in the American economy. And that executive order 
directed the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to exercise rulemaking authority to uh, curtail what he described as the unfair use of non-compete clauses, clauses that unduly limit a worker's ability to change jobs. So in response to that, you are correct, this past January on the 5th, the Federal Trade Commission published a notice of proposed rulemaking that categorically bans non-competes for all employees, uh, all workers, um, and that is broadly defined because a worker under this rule, this proposed rule, would include both employees, independent contractors, interns, whether they're paid or unpaid. So it's a broad definition for the term worker. So we're, we're dealing with a categorical, potential categorical ban on non-competes. And the, the thinking behind this is that they, they, they harm workers. They, they hurt competition. They reduce wages. They stifle innovation um, and exploit workers. That's the, the philosophy behind the ban. Um, and the FTC has predicted that if they eliminate non-competes, wages will increase for many workers, um, anywhere from 3 to 13, 14%. So, um, so they're bound and determined um, to, you know, to uh, see, see this through. Um, if it's adopted, then um, employers in every state will be prohibited from using a non-compete clause. And to answer your question directly, a non-compete clause is a clause, we tend to refer to them as non-compete agreements, but the term used in the proposed rule is clause because the FTC knows that there could be a non-compete clause as part of another type of agreement, whether it's a severance agreement, um, a buy-sell agreement, there could be a non-compete clause in an employment agreement, a confidentiality agreement. So they use the term clause. So a non-compete clause um, is one that would restrict a worker from working for a competitor uh, or starting a competing business within a certain geographic area and a certain period of time after employment. So that's that's what a non-compete clause is when they refer to you know a ban on non-compete clauses. Um, a non-solicitation clause is an agreement uh, where a worker would agree not to solicit an employer's customers for a period of time after leaving employment. So I won't go after your customers or maybe potential customers um, if I do leave the business uh, and work for someone else. There and are also go after employees. That's yeah, employees. that's usually referred to as a no recruit. Uh, clause. Some people call it no poaching, although poaching can have other meanings. But um, yes, that I would agree if I'm the employee and I leave you, I won't um, I won't solicit um, or recruit your employees to work at my new company or the company I'm working at. So yeah, those are the differences. Now, this proposed rule, um, it, it bans non-compete clauses and other clauses that function like non-competes. So uh, if a particular agreement, like a confidentiality agreement, is so overbroad that it has the effect of stopping an employee from working for a competitor, then it also would be prohibited. They're calling them functional non-competes if it functions like that. 
So an example of that would be if I'm a, a PMP and uh, I have a confidentiality agreement, not a non-compete, but a confidentiality agreement where I say to you that um, you cannot discuss any industry business with a new employer. Obviously, that's overbroad, and that would stop me from working for in the industry for a competitor. So that would function like a non-compete, even though it's a confidentiality agreement. So that's what they're talking about. So, okay, so now this rule, quick, if it was to go into effect, would also uh, rescind all existing non-compete clauses that are in effect for current employees or former employees. Um, so it has a rescission um, element to it that really, um, it, you know, again, very, very broad. It's not just moving forward. It would be any agreement that's currently in effect. Um, and it would, in fact, preempt all existing state statutes, regulations, orders, and interpretations uh, that govern non-competes. And um, there are more than 30 uh, of states that have some type of limitation on non-competes. So they would all go away and this would basically uh, preempt all of that. So prior to this, it was pretty much a state law thing. Each state handled it on its own. Does this affect that the non-solicits, the, the non-poaching, as you said, uh, the, the uh, you know, uh, do they want to do away with that? Because I get, you don't want to stop a guy from making a living if that's how he makes his living. But as soon as you touch my employees, as soon as you touch my customers, that's off limits. Is, is there any danger in that? Uh, again, only if those clauses or those prohibitions are overbroad. So they do have to be tailored in a narrow way and they have to be specific um, to, you know, just that information that is in fact confidential or a trade secret of the business um, so that it isn't effectively preventing the person from going to work for a competitor. But you can still do it. Um, and in, the, in fact, in, employers should do it. They sh should have been doing it all along. They should have uh, confidentiality agreements or non-disclosure agreements, um, non-solicitation agreements. Um, thankfully, those would still be permitted, but again, they have to be written carefully. And so just for anybody who's ever thinking about selling their company, not to bring this in, we have had deals fall apart because there were no non-competes or non-solicits no, non with certain employees. Um, so it's extremely important that, uh, that you think about this kind of thing well before uh, you're going to make any move. Um, I, I know for me, like just thinking through the, the main thing I'm concerned about, I, I like I don't really care about someone like trying to stifle their career. I have no gain in that, but I absolutely want to make sure that they don't turn around and solicit my customers or my team. That's the part that I feel like we need to make sure that, I mean, especially if you're a PMP, that you, you need to make sure you're tight on that because that's what I really care about. I mean, the non-competes, like whatever. I mean, you know, I shouldn't say whatever, but just, so when I hear that, like, especially like a deal going through, it's, it's, um, that's kind of crazy. I've, I've had similar experiences like that where, where people are very, very picky about non-competes, but I think the non-solicit is really, that's the real, in my that's mind. That's the crux of it. Yes. Yeah. You know, 100%. And you're right, because when we talk to people about this, um, the first thing they'll say is, well, I don't, you know, I don't want my anybody leaving, you know, solicit my customers. And so we'll point out, well, then 
why don't you just have that clause? Do you really need a non-compete? And it turns out that a lot of people have non-competes because they thought that was what it meant was that you right. could you know, you couldn't solicit the business, but you can still have those agreements, again, carefully worded, but um, you should have those. And and that hopefully would prevent what everybody is trying to prevent, which is their business going down because somebody takes all their customers. <laughs> well, there has to be some sort of protections, right, for, for the owner. I mean, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, if you bring someone along, you train them, you spend a ton of money in developing those customers and developing that that employee and there's no protections for you. I mean, that's not really fair either. You know, right. mm-hmm. I think in a, in a high tech company or, or something where there's something really that needs to be protected, that probably holds a lot more water. Pest control is pest control. And I don't want to, uh, you know, there, there are certain uh, techniques that we use and whatnot, but most companies know you know, how to do it. So, so I'm not sure that the non-compete is as big of a deal, although correct me if I'm wrong. I I just, if somebody goes after my customers, somebody goes after my uh, employees, that's where. Well, it's not technology, right? It's relationships. That's, that's the key in our industry. It's the relationship that, you know, when that person transitions, because I mean, let's face it, most people, connect with a technician, they connect with someone who's an ops. They don't necessarily connect with the owner or the brand. So that's what really needs to be protected. So anyway, all right, let's keep going. Yeah. And you know, let me just to that point, you know, the customer list is what's proprietary, right? And so that's the way those, you know, you want to work with a lawyer, of course, on these things, because these are legal contracts that are only enforced via litigation. Um, But the idea would be to define very clearly what is confidential information in your company. If you do have trade secrets, which is a very specific and uh, clearly defined or not clearly defined, but well-defined form of confidential information, if you have those, then you want to identify what they are. And and that's, uh, you know, how to build out those agreements is is clarify what is confidential information, what is proprietary, what are considered um, business, you know, secrets or trade secrets. So the FTC puts this out. Is it official yet? Is there a timeline for it? And then how likely is it to happen? Like what, where does that go? So um, yes, the FTC uh, has uh, promulgated this notice of proposed rulemaking and um, they, the public has a comment period. There's always a comment period. Once a rule is, um, is published, the comment period was scheduled to end on uh, March uh, 20th. However, last week, the FTC um, notified the public that they're going to extend the comment period to April 19th. Uh, to date, they have received over 17,000 comments. They've posted about 8,800 of those. You can go online and read them if you're so interested. <laughs> um, but uh, April 19th, the comment period will close. The FTC will then consider the comments uh, and issue a final rule that may or may not differ from the proposed rule. Uh, that can take a few months, obviously, for them to get through the comments and consider them. Once they do that, they will uh, publish a final rule, and the final rule will not take effect uh, before 60 days passes once it's published in the Federal Register. Um, and then the way the rule is written, if this doesn't change, the proposed rule, the way it's written, um, employers will have 180 days from the point at which it's uh, published as a final rule to comply. So, you know, absent uh, legal challenges that halt 
implementation of the, the rule. It will take effect sometime mid 2024. Wow. And go ahead and get your crystal ball out. Let's, let's hear <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> well, I do think they will publish um, a rule, and that's because of the executive order. When I when I first mentioned, they uh, the FTC has been charged by the president to implement um, to implement a rule, and so I do believe that they will implement a rule. However, we anticipate that there will be immediate legal challenges, and there's a lot of talk about that already. And there's a number of good legal arguments to be made about the fact that the FTC has uh, overreached its authority in, um, in, in promulgating this rule. So we expect to see those challenges immediately um, filed. Um, and so that may put a stay on the rule. Um, but there's another interesting, um, some interesting activity occurring on the legislative level. Um, that you, um, your, your listeners may not be aware of. Um, and, and that is kind of an anticipation that the FTC rule will not stand. Um, on February 1st, the Workforce Mobility Act was reintroduced in Congress. This had been introduced previously, I think 2019, 2021. This is legislation that effectively bans non-competes the same way the FTC rule would um, with a few limited exceptions. So it's very similar to the Federal Trade Commission's proposed rule. Uh, the one difference is that it would not apply retroactively to non-competes that are currently in force. It would only apply to non-competes moving forward once the act is signed. So um, that is uh, you know, Congress's solution uh, to avoid this protracted litigation um, that the FTC is likely to face if they implement this rule. Um, and if and I will tell you, there's bipartisan support. And a lot of people feel like, you know, like you guys mentioned that, hey, you know, it's, we don't want to stop people from working in an industry or working in their profession. We just don't want them stealing our employees and our right. customers. So if enough uh, bipartisan, um, you know, senators and, and um, congressmen, Congress people feel that way, this could pass and that would affect, have the same effect basically. So essentially it's a, a regulation versus a law. Correct. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know, the FTC really, in, in my opinion, isn't in a position to enforce a nationwide ban. They've never done it before. It's completely right. outside the scope of, of um, you know, hundreds of years of precedent and the way that non-competes have been enforced by the FTC. It's been case by case. Um, so it does seem unusual that that would be uh, the agency doing it. However, I will tell you that in the Workforce Mobility Act, Congress explicitly gives authority to the Department of Labor and the Federal Trade Commission to enforce the law. So if it passes then the FTC will, in fact, have some enforcement authority. They'll have explicit enforcement authority that they don't have now. So. So I'm a PMP and, you know, I'm vaguely familiar with what's going on. I may have some non-competes. Who knows how up to date they are? I've been using it for the last 10 years, whatever. What should I be doing now? Like, how should I get prepped? You know, it sounds like, and I'm not. By the way, I have no official opinion that really matters on this, but it sounds like this is going to happen. 
this is probably going to go down. If they've got something in Congress and FTC has got something, and I agree with you, if the president says, hey, you know, here, here's what I want you to do, if even if it gets, you know, lit up in courts, I think something is going to happen. What what should I do as a PMP, lawn care owner? Like, you know, what 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 should I be focused on right now? And how should I respond to what's going on? So a few things, um, but one quick disclaimer, and that is um, this is not legal advice. I'm going to give you some, (laughs) I mentioned a few thoughts. Our listeners listeners are conditioned. They know that. (laughs) Okay, good. They come to us for legal advice. (laughs) All right, that's my disclaimer for the day. Absolutely, knock it out. (laughs) Uh, So uh, the first thing we're telling people is is, um, if you're in a progressive state, um, be, um, be on the watch because we uh, expect some of the states to adopt some categorical bans long before Congress acts on the Workforce Mobility Act and the FTC rule is implemented, because that's always what happens. As soon as there's a movement in this direction, some of those progressive states step up and do that. And of course, we've seen a lot of changes since COVID on non-compete state regulations and laws and statutes. So I anticipate that that will happen. Now we know there's a categorical ban in California, North Dakota and Oklahoma. Um, but some of those other progressive states that have strict limitations could go a step further. So states like Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, those are the ones to keep an eye on. Um, so that's, that's interesting. So California is progressive. Oklahoma, North Dakota, not so much. How does yeah. that square? It is interesting. I have not researched uh, the history of how those bans came about. To know that, um, uh, but that those are the states, and it is kind of it is kind of interesting that those would be the ones. Um, but I think right now we could expect more, of, you know, leaning that direction from the progressive states. I know that um, you know several states have banned it already, right? That, but but the information that we get from like uh, some of the big companies who operate nationally, they make all their employees sign it, whether they're in a state, they, you know. Is it enforceable? No. Is it a deterrent? Maybe. And that's why they do it. Uh, I'm not sure, you know. So actually, that's a great point, Dan, because um, this is now the time to really be careful with that kind of practice mm-hmm. because uh, the FTC feels yeah, yeah. that, you know, that that is uh, it is deterring employees from having the freedom and mobility to move, even if it's not enforced. And those large companies may uh, have taken the position that we're going to have it, but we're not going to enforce it because we know we can't in certain states or it's not structured to be enforced in certain states. So they're uh, fine with just, you know, the the deterrent uh, aspect of it. But that's where they need to be careful because the FTC uh, can pursue individual employers with non-competes. And they recently did that for the first time um, right before issuing this rule. So we know that they uh, can do it and will do it. Um, and so they these employers need to ensure that any non-compete that they have is reasonably tailored to protect the company's legitimate interests and that it doesn't exceed that because I think they could become a target then for the FTC to investigate them. Right. So that's and important. Both- and, and in general, PMP should not overuse non-competes. You know, you have to be careful with this. I think there's, you know, it's sort of easy to just uh, get an agreement off the internet and, and use it and not pay attention to what it might say and uh, have everybody sign it. Uh, but really, non-competes should be reserved for positions that pose a competitive threat. And in, in, in the pest control industry, that's typically sales and management. Um, they shouldn't, you know, my opinion, there's 
not a need, a great need to use them for positions other than those. So that's uh, something to look at. The other thing that PMPs ought to do is, is really, um, you know, take a look at what agreements they have on confidentiality, non-disclosure, um, non-solicitation. And um, if they want to protect proprietary information and solicitation of their employees after someone leaves, they need to ensure they've got good, strong, robust agreement uh, that was developed specifically for their company in their jurisdiction so that it could be enforced by the courts in their area. And that's where, again, a qualified attorney comes into play. Um, this is not something you want to get from a friendly, um, you know, a PMP owner, or like I said, off the internet. It's too it's too much risk to implement something like that. Um, and so, be very careful. Have those agreements reviewed now, and make sure that they protect the company. Okay. So yeah. So I think the main thing is is get get your stuff to an attorney. Make sure that you're clean. And if not, then um, <clears throat> get there pretty quickly. And I, I mean, for me, just listening to you talk, it sounds like non-solicits probably for technicians, people who are customer facing and then non-competes or some sort of some sort of protection for managers and sales. Is that I, I don't want to put words in your mouth there. And again, I know you're not an attorney. We do all the standard disclaimers, but is that a good summary or not really? <laughs> No, that's a good summary, but I think a confidentiality agreement is appropriate for any position that is access to customer information, customer lists. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with, an, with a, you know, a confidentiality agreement that prohibits workers who have that knowledge from disclosing that information uh, after they leave. It makes total sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. And so, you know, to so that we, end, too, you really need to make sure that you have practices in place that... Um, send the message that the information is confidential. Right. You know, are you training employees on what confidential information is? Have you identified what confidential information is? Are new hires um, aware? And do you have practices in place to protect that information through your electronic systems um, and, and rules about downloading you know, files and customer information? So those are all things that are part of this that you, you know, need to pay close attention to. All right, so, I'm taking if, I'm taking notes now. <laughs> well, if, if 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 you know, sometimes calling lawyers uh, to to look at things that may happen can get kind of an expensive. But you said that there's a 180 day grace period. Would you recommend contacting a lawyer today or waiting for the um, rule to go into effect? Well, I would contact a lawyer today. That's a personal opinion. Um, and, and the reason for that is, remember, we still, we still have state limitations. So you want to be sure you're complying with those. The FTC is targeting individual businesses. So you want to be mindful of that, to your point about broad agreements or agreements used for everybody, whether or not they're enforced. Um, and it's in your best interest to protect your confidential information now. Why would we wait? Right. to have a you know a robust agreement for that may yeah. need tweaking once um you know if, if if the workforce mobility act is passed then maybe we need to tweak it a little bit um but i don't see why you'd want to wait yep okay. agreed so you guys ready to switch gears you want to talk about yeah, independent uh, contractors yeah we can do that all right so so, so gene there's impending department labor 
kind of a final rule pertaining to independent contractors. Can you give us kind of the same what you did before, just give us kind of a background on this issue and what's going on? Yeah, sure. Um, In July of 2021, seems like forever ago, um, the Department of Labor issued a final rule on independent contractor status under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, remember, independent contractor status is defined differently under different employment regulations and under the IRS code. There are statutory employees, statutory non-employees under the IRS code. Dan uh, certainly is the one to speak to that, not me. But uh, I'm talking about the, um, the classification of an individual as an employer contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So in January of 2021, a rule was implemented um, and it had been promulgated under the Trump era DOL, even though it was early in 2021 when President Biden was elected. Um, and that rule was set to take effect in March of 2021. Um, the current DOL under the current administration attempted to rescind it and, and, uh, and stop it, but they were not successful. So it went in, um, it, it became effective in March of 2021. Um, unfortunately, that rule, which was very favorable for employers, very uh, uh, some tests that were easy to understand for classifying workers, um, that rule is being rescinded in two months. Um, and so um, I'll just mention very briefly, you know, what's in effect today as we sit here today is a two core factor test for determining if a worker is an independent contractor or employee. And that two core factor test focuses on the nature and degree of the worker's control over uh, the work and the worker's opportunity for profit and loss. So we, we boiled it down in 2021 to two core factors and employers have loved this um, since then because it made it easy for them to determine if a worker was a contractor or an employee. Now, if there, um, if there was disagreement on the end result of that analysis of those two core factors, then there were three additional factors that could have been uh, utilized. Uh, now, fast forward to now, um, you know, the, the current administration believes that misclassification of workers um, as independent contractors and not employees is one of the most serious problems facing workers and businesses and the broader economy. So we have a philosophy, again, that they believe that this is bad for business, bad for employees. They feel like employees who are misclassified are denied basic employment rights like minimum wage, overtime, workers' compensation, unemployment. Um, They can't participate in an employer's benefit plans, health insurance, retirement plans, what have you. Um, And they feel like employers who follow the law are disadvantaged because they're going to pay more because they have all these labor costs that employers that don't follow the law and hire independent contractors are not, they don't have those same costs. And I've heard that argument a lot, and there is certainly some truth to that. So um, so the current administration, again, very uh, adamant about this and um, to remedy the problem that made it easier to classify workers as contractors. Last October, October 13th of 2022, they published a proposed rule to eliminate the two core factor tests and to go back to um, a more ambiguous um, six-factor test, similar to what was in effect prior to the change in 2021. So that proposed rule came out, and the comment period has already closed, 
And we are now awaiting for the final rule, which will be published in May, according to the schedule, um, the Department of Labor schedule. So, um, so that's what we're looking at now. If it's published in its current form without significant changes, which I don't anticipate that there will be significant changes, uh, then there will be these six factors. It's actually seven. This is kind of interesting. Um, there are six factors, none of which prevail, none of which are considered core. Um, they're all analyzed individually, and they look at the totality of the circumstances. But the seventh one is what's interesting and new and different. The, the Department of Labor has added a, a seventh test that is not defined. It basically is um, a, 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 a possible factor that might be relevant to the determination, but they don't tell us what that is. <laughs> so, so they left the door open to include other factors that nobody knows you know, what those will be. Um, but the six core factors are, are, again, similar to what we had in the past. It's looking at the worker's opportunity for profit and loss depending on their level of managerial skill. They're looking at the capital investment made by the employee, uh, the degree of permanence in the relationship between the worker and the employer, um, the nature and degree of control that the employer has over the employee, um, the extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the employer's business, and the skill and initiative. Um, if the, in other words, you know, is the is the worker dependent on the employer for training and things like that? So um, it's it's. I'm not going to say it's it, it, it's complex. I mean, it is. It, there's no way. There's no way around it. it it's going to take. Um, it's it's going to take some work to really determine if someone is legitimately an employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act or a contractor. It's a, it's a totality of the circumstances approach um, that that we're, we're, we're going back to. So more litigation, um, more challenges on the horizon, but um, it's coming. So, so just, just for context, uh, uh, as an employee, uh, if, if you have a W-2 employee, the cost to have that uh, W-2 employee You've got to pay payroll taxes. You've got workers' comp. You've got state unemployment insurance, federal unemployment insurance, and you know, depending on what role that that person is, that workers' comp could be pretty expensive, and so it could cost you maybe a dollar fifteen to a dollar twenty for every dollar you spend. Uh, you know, and and so that's why an employer would want to have ten ninety nine contractors. Usually young people who don't understand everything that they're entitled to also want to be 1099 contractors because they don't get any of that stuff withheld. But uh, it's it, there's definitely, um, you know, uh, a little push and pull on that. So, and it, so yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, and, you know, we we do. I'm, I'm very aware of several uh, segments in our industry that that utilize 1099 contractors. What? And again, I, I realize we can put out all the legal disclaimers, but what should PMPs be doing about this uh, final? I'm wondering this rule that's coming down. I mean, it, it sounds like this is probably going to happen. I mean, it, reverting back to something that was that was changed. I, I mean, I think that's probably going to happen. But what what should they be doing now? Yeah, I agree with you. It's probably going to happen. They need to get hold of these six factors. 
uh, and they're uh, they're published. They're out, you know, in the public domain. It's just a matter of googling it and getting the proposed rule. And when you get the proposed rule, I forget how many hundreds of pages it is, but the last two pages of the entire document have the six factors. So yeah. you just have to kind of flip through to the last two pages. Yeah, and you can, of you course, can see what those are. Yeah. yeah. And employers need to really look at those and review those in, um, in with with regard to the people they have classified as contractors. And uh, determine, you know, if in fact they do qualify to be classified that way. Um, and there's more information about those six factors throughout the whole document, an explanation for each, if they care to go that deep, um, or obviously they could hire someone to outsource the analysis of that and, um, and look at it. Now, but I also say that it's not just this FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act proposed rule. There are other um, employment regulations and laws that define the employment relationship. So em employers need to look at all of them and consider what would happen if they misclassified a worker under, you know, another law. So we know IRS, it's about, it's about taxes. Um, but there's, you know, there's other, there's other laws that come into play. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, you know, we have the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is enforced by the Department of Labor. So they're going to follow the economic realities test that I'm talking about. But there's other tests. So it's complex and, um, and employers need to pay attention to what the rules are in their state and under these federal employment laws. And so who would they go and I mean, how would they even know, like, OK, I'm in or I'm out? Is this an attorney? Is this someone like you? Like, what do, what do, what do we do? How do they figure out, like, OK, yeah, we're, we're doing OK or we're not doing okay as far as these six rules and the nebulous seventh? So as far as these are concerned, they would want to talk to somebody who uh, had a deep knowledge of employment regulations. We could certainly assist with that, or an attorney could, could assist with that as well. So gotcha. either one. Gotcha. So um, we're starting to run short on time, but I, the, the last one that I wanted to, to cover, and it's really important, is the DOL's proposed rule to increase guaranteed uh, salary level for white collar workers or white collar exempt employees. The reason that this is important is because so many people in our industry think that I'll just pay somebody a salary and I don't have to pay them overtime. Well, tell us about why this is so important and what, uh, you know, what the effect is going to be. So this is really about overtime and it's mm -hmm. about the classification of a worker as exempt or non-exempt from overtime. And you're correct, Dan. So many employers believe that if they just pay a salary, then they don't have to pay overtime. But there are certain tests that have to be met for an employer to claim an overtime exemption for a given position. And what's at, at stake right now um, is something that we dealt with in 2016. Um, and that is that the, the Department of Labor is uh, going to be issuing a proposed rule in May that uh, will increase the guaranteed salary level for a worker classified as exempt under the executive, administrative, or professional exemptions. So those are the white collar exemptions that you mentioned. So this does not affect 7i employees. This does not affect outside sales workers who are white collar workers, but they don't have to be paid a guaranteed salary. It only affects positions 
that are required to receive a guaranteed salary. Right now, that salary level is uh, 35568 In 2016, there was a move to increase it. At that time, it was 23660 So there was a move to increase it to 47476 uh, That rule was enjoined at the 11th hour, but the Trump-era DOL came back in a year or so later and did increase it to the 35568 level, so $684 a week. Um, that is the current level. We believe that the proposed rule will um, uh, increase the rate to at least the level that we saw in 2016. So at least 47,000, um, um, 476, probably more, probably more um, along the lines of something in the $50,000 range. If that happens, when it happens, then PMPs will have a choice for employees who make less than that and who are classified as exempt. They will either have to increase the guaranteed salary level to retain the overtime exemption, or the individual won't qualify for the exemption and they will have to pay overtime. So that gets into all the pay plan issues. You know, do you pay bonuses and incentives on top of the guaranteed salary? How do you convert a salary to an hourly rate if the person is working 50 or 60 hours a week? Um, and do I have to pay time and a half? Why, why, do you, why do you want to change me to a hourly when I was, you know, oh my gosh, uh, am I not good, good enough? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a whole yeah. problem. Yes. It's a huge problem. It is. Yeah. So it's, it's going to have a significant impact, just like we were all dealing with in 2016. There was a lot of concern about it then. And um, and those same concerns exist today. It's um, so yeah, it's a concern. <clears throat> it's going to happen. Yeah. There will be an increase. Yeah. yeah. Um, and frankly, I, I would tell you there needs to be. Okay. If you just think for a moment, the term executive. It's an executive exemption. What executive do you know who makes thirty six thousand dollars a yeah. year? Yeah, only at Tiny's place. But oh gosh, no, <laughs> Lord no. Lord, no. Uh, no, not even close. But no, I, and I agree. I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, I don't know any executive that, I mean, you think about inflation, well, it's just it, unrealistic. It was a way to the, get around the, 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 yeah. the overtime rules. But, yeah. um, you know, so uh, very, all very interesting. It, it, this is just terrific. Um, this is good stuff. Um, I would agree. So, yeah. I would agree. Gene, it has been fantastic having you here. <clears throat> As always, I took a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is where you're talking. I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. So um, we will, what we'll do is we'll put a link to your website. Um, just a reminder for those that are listening, all of the resources and topics that we talked about, they're available on the podcast website, pmpindustryinsider.com. Just take a look under show notes. Gene, if it's okay, we'll put your contact information as well on that, uh, on that page. And we'll put, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put some links in as best as we can. But I think the main thing is that if folks know how to contact you, if it's okay, we'd like to put your info on there as well. Um, and with that, Dan, anything else before we close out here? No, I don't think so. I just want to thank you, Gene. It was, it was terrific. It's always great to talk to you and, and, and very, very interesting stuff. So. Oh, thank you guys. It was great to see you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yep, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. hey, you all managed to spend another 40 minutes with Dan and I, but obviously the real star here was Gene. And with that, we're signing off. We'll see you all next time. Take care. <laughs> Take care. See you. Bye now. Bye-bye.